Good morning. Welcome to Faith on Hill's online Sunday morning service. We gather together every Sunday morning at 10.30 a.m., both online and in person. Now, online, we have the live stream at faithonhill.com and on our Facebook page. And if you are there, uh, feel free to give us a share or a like. Uh, We have the audio versions on Spotify and Apple Podcasts. You just have to search Faith on Hill for all of our audio podcasts. And if you aren't subscribed, please do. It is a treacherous weather week here in the Portland area, and uh, honestly, when I'm recording this, I don't know whether we are online only or in person. I kind of suspect what's going to happen is that we are both, uh, but you never know, and so you make preparations. So uh, if if we are online only, welcome to everybody. Uh, If we are online and in person, we want to say welcome to the folks who are usually online with us. Welcome to the folks who don't feel safe coming out. Welcome to the folks who are sick. Welcome to the folks who are checking out the church. There's different reasons why people check out our online content, and uh, we are happy to have you no matter what reason you are here with us. We are going to be starting the book of the Revelation this morning, chapter 1. I know that there is a lot of baggage that comes with that. Some people grew up in churches that wanted nothing to do with the book of the Revelation. Um, and then there are other churches that wanted way too much to do with the book of the Revelation. And I've talked to people who are like, yeah, growing up, like all my church wanted to do was talk about Jesus coming back and the end of the world, and, and I just don't want anything to do with it. And then there are people who are like, you know, we never talked about it, and I'm a li- I find it confusing, and I'm a little worried. We're going to try this morning to do our best to get away from any confusion and remind people that the book is called The Revelation of Jesus Christ. And so our focus all through our study of the book of the Revelation is not to get our end times charts in order. We will not be trying to figure out who the Antichrist is. We will not be uh, getting weird. We will be focusing on Jesus revealed in this book, who he is, what he's doing, what he will do. If, If our focus and our main takeaway isn't Jesus, then we've missed the boat. So that is our goal as we start our study in the book of the Revelation, looking at chapter 1 and seeing what Jesus is now. Well, some basic info on the book of the Revelation. You know, uh, it's always kind of a toss-up whenever we start a new book. Do I do uh, an initial kind of overview, introduction sermon, and then we get into studying it the next week. Uh, This week, I'm going to do a short overview, and then we'll just get straight into our Bible study. Uh, It was written by John the Apostle, the same as like Peter, James, and John, one of the 12 disciples, either in 64 or 96 AD. Now, why would that matter? In some ways, it does. In some ways, it doesn't. I am This is one I will fight on. You know, there's like things that I don't care to fight about. I talk about this a lot. Like there are things that Christians argue about or non-Christians try to argue with Christians about. 
and, and that I'm just like, I don't care. Why are we arguing about this? I will argue over that John wrote the book. Every, no, oh, not every, but the majority of, uh, the majority of, of uh, second century, that's people that lived, you know, 100 AD to 200 AD, people who lived within 50 years of the, you know, the life of the apostles, and I mean all of them, right? Uh, if you were born in, at 100 AD, you would have lived within 50 years of the life of the apostles. You would have been born 70 years after Jesus' death and resurrection. So you would have been in, in contact with people who had living memory of those events, you know, uh, World War II happened over 70 years ago, but we still have people who were there. We still have people who were direct participants in those events. And then we have ample people whose fathers and grandfathers were there and have told the story, whose mothers and grandmothers were there and who told the story. So everyone, or the majority, I should say, of, of second century church where are called the church fathers, the, uh, the people who lived in the generation after the apostles. They say that John wrote the book. And I'm going to say this. Modern, and when we say modern, you got to understand something. When people say modern scholars say this, they almost universally mean white Western European or American scholars. And they will exclude the scholarship of Christians in other parts of the world as being authoritative. I'll get off my soapbox on that one. But people will say this. Modern scholarship says that the book was written by some other John, maybe 100 years later, 200 years later, or it was written by somebody who was pretending to be John the Apostle, but it wasn't written by John the Apostle. The testimony of the early church fathers, those who lived within a generation of the Apostles, all testified that John wrote the book. The early church accepted John the Apostle, one of the 12 disciples, as the author of the book. And we received their testimony. And I'm not going to go against it. Now, there's also a debate. Was the book written around 64 AD or was the book written around 96 AD? This one I don't really care to argue. Personally, and, and, and there's like maybe three people that are watching this online and in person, uh, that care. But personally, I go towards the later date, which is amusing to me since I'm almost always on the earlier date side of whenever any book in the New Testament was written. Uh, I personally go with the 96 AD. An old and elderly John the Apostle wrote these words. And I love that for a lot of reasons. I love that because it, you, you, you can be well advanced in years. And, and John at this point would have been older than just about anyone in our church. And yet he was still being used in a massive way for the work of Jesus. And I love that, that, that I'm not going to be put on the shelf by God. I may put myself on the shelf for certain things. There may be uh, things that I'm just not young enough to do anymore, but that I can still be used by God. It's incredibly encouraging. The reason there are these two dates is because there were two massive persecutions of Christians. In 64 AD, Emperor Nero, who you've probably heard of, Emperor Nero, there was a fire in Rome, and tradition says that he blamed Christians for it, and so there was a persecution of Christians, and it was around this time that the Apostle Paul was executed, 
and the apostle Peter was, were executed, both likely in the city of Rome. So people say, well, you know what, that was the time of the great persecution. Apostles were killed. It makes sense that if John the apostle wrote this, he was exiled during that time. Maybe. The, and then the other person was this uh, Emperor Domitian. And Domitian had a, a big, massive empire-wide persecution of Christians around 96 AD. So there's others who say John could still reasonably be thought to be alive at that time. He's the last of the apostles left alive. Tradition uh, says that John lived well advanced in years. He was the only one of the 12 disciples who was not killed for his faith. And so they say John, in his, in his old age, was exiled to this island of Patmos, and it was there during that time of persecution in the late 90s AD that that was when John wrote uh, his letter, The Revelation of Jesus Christ. I don't really care. The reason why people make this argument, and this is, this is the thing that's interesting to me, is why is it that you need that to be a certain way? Why is it that somebody would try to prove that John the Apostle didn't write the book of the Revelation? Because if it's not John the Apostle, if it was written 150 years later, something like that, then I can dismiss what it says. I can ignore what it says. And any way that people can find to ignore, to dismiss, to minimize the word of God in our lives, in our world, we will try to do. Why is it that the dates matter? There are some theological traditions within Christianity that will teach that the book of the Revelation deals with the suffering of Christians under Nero and the coming destruction of Jerusalem and the temple under the general, later emperor, Titus in 70 AD. And so they say, yes, the book was prophetic then about events that were coming within six years. And if the book's written in 96 AD, then the book must be about things that are in the future. And there are traditions within Christianity that do not like the idea that there are still large prophetic things left to be fulfilled. Christians almost universally agree that Jesus will come back, the second coming of Jesus. That is a generally agreed upon fact. Whether you are Roman Catholic, Orthodox, Coptic Christian, uh, Protestant, whether you are Pentecostal or Presbyterian, whether you are Baptist or you are Vineyard or you're denominational or non-denominational, older church, younger church, it is almost universally accepted by the church worldwide that Jesus will come back. But if there's more to it than that, that gets messy, that gets uncomfortable. And there are traditions that just for different and various reasons, they want to minimize any sort of future prophetic significance to the Bible, that most prophecy has already been fulfilled. And there's different reasons why, depending on which faith tradition you're talking about. The most dominant in American Protestant evangelical churches, and that's where we would get lumped into, right? We are Protestants. We're not Catholic. We're not Orthodox. We are, uh, have an evangelical background, even though that word has been hijacked, and you say evangelical now, and it means something very different than it did 30 years ago, 50 years ago, 70 years ago. But people from those backgrounds 
the most influential reason why they want that earlier date is this theology that says that the church has replaced the nation of Israel, that God has totally abandoned the Jews as his chosen people, and the church has now fulfilled all remaining prophecies. Because when you go back and read the Old Testament, there's plenty of prophecies that were never fulfilled before Jesus came. There are prophecies from Isaiah, Ezekiel, Jeremiah, Daniel, concerning the nation of Israel that were never fulfilled before Jesus came. And so people that hold to replacement theology, they tend to be people from the Reformed churches, people uh, in a Presbyterian church, a lot of uh, Baptist churches might hold to this as well, that this idea that since Israel has replaced been replaced by the church, we have fulfilled those prophecies and Israel no longer plays a role. Why is that theology in place? The best case scenario is that they just have a different reading of scripture. But if we're honest, there is a strain of anti-Semitism that existed in the original reformers and Protestants. Martin Luther was a great man, an important man. He was also racist. He was anti-Semitic. He did not like Jews. And he was not alone. And it still exists in Europe today. This is the thing people don't want to talk about. I mean, anti-Semitism is it's on the rise throughout Europe. France has a horrible problem with anti-Semitism right now that they don't want to be honest with. And so has that seeped into the church a lot of the times, I don't really like to argue about a theological disagreement, but I'm concerned about why something is the way it is. Even stuff I agree with. There are times where I've had conversations with people and I've agreed with them theologically, but I've been really, really concerned about why they've come to that conclusion. So that's why people argue over these things. What I believe and, and how we will approach the book going forward is that the book was written by the Apostle John from revelation that he was given directly by God or through the angels to specifically seven churches in Asia Minor, what we now think of as Turkey. So specifically to seven Asian churches and sometime between 64 or 96 AD, one of those two dates. I personally go with the later date. I don't think it matters though because if it was written in 64 AD, as you go through this, you're going to say, hey, if you're a student of history, there are things that are talked about in this book that were, were not fulfilled during the destruction of Jerusalem and the temple in 70 AD. So if we have a consistent approach to the Bible, Bible prophecy is full of first and second fulfillment, partial and full fulfillment. Jesus came once, he will come again uh, when in Daniel chapter 9, it talked about the abomination that causes desolation. And, and they would have thought, hey, that was done by Antiochus Epiphanes a few hundred years before Jesus. And then Jesus comes on the scene and he, he teaches them, no, Daniel chapter 9 hasn't been fulfilled yet. So if John was writing this book before the destruction of the temple, if we are consistent in how we approach the Bible, and we should be, if we are consistent in how we approach the Bible, then very reasonable to say first fulfillment or a partial fulfillment happened in 70 AD and a full fulfillment has yet to come. Now you might say, Adam, why does that matter? Because people who are inconsistent with how they approach the Bible is how we get 
racism and anti-Semitism in the church, people who are inconsistent with how they approach the Bible, is how we get abuse and toxicity in the church. People who are inconsistent with how we approach the Bible is how we get sin and dysfunction in the church. We want to be consistent. It was written by John, but it was initiated by God. Chapter 1, verse 1 says, The revelation from Jesus Christ, which God gave him to show his servants what must soon take place. He made it known by sending his angels to his servant John, who testifies to everything he saw. That is, the word of God, the testimony of Jesus Christ. Blessed is the one who reads the words of this prophecy. Blessed are those who hear it. Blessed are those who take heart at what is written in it, because the time is near. So it is written by John, but it was initiated by God towards his church. Jesus wants us to know this stuff. Jesus wants you and me to know this. God initiated this communication, and if God is the one initiating, then we must listen and respond. Now, what's the book of the Revelation about? Remember, I said it's about Jesus. The revelation from Jesus or of Jesus Christ. The basic way of thinking of it is the first part of the book is about the imperfect church. The basic way of thinking about it is that the first part is the imperfect church. Chapter 1 through chapter uh, 3 is dealing with the church that was going on there in John's day. And all of the mess, and we'll start getting into that next week, and you'll see similarities to churches in our own day because people don't change. The next part is about what the Bible calls the restoration of all things. That, That God is going to begin saying no more. This madness cannot continue. And then in the end of the book, from about chapter 19 on, the church is no longer imperfect, but it has been perfected by Jesus Christ. And and some some of the most encouraging, some of my favorite passages in the scripture come at the end of the book of Revelation, where we see where we are headed to. So that's the basic overview of the book. And it says that John, to the seven churches that are in the province of Asia, again, that's what we would now think of as Turkey, grace and peace to you from him who is and who was and who is to come and from the seven spirits before the throne. Now, a lot of people get tripped up here when it says the seven spirits before the throne. You're going to see that again. Um, It could be translated sevenfold spirit of God. The, the, The idea of seven in the Bible is a very complete number. A perfect number. And the book of the Revelation leans heavily on what's gone before in the Bible. If you haven't read the book of Genesis, Revelation gets confusing. Uh, If you haven't read Daniel, Revelation gets confusing. If, If you haven't read the Bible, Revelation gets confusing. And so, this is one of those things, all Scripture is equally true, not all Scripture is equally clear. My best understanding is it's speaking of the Trinity here. Grace to you from who was and who is and who is to come. We've heard of God the Father giving revelation to Jesus to give to his servants through the sevenfold spirit in front of the throne, the the perfect work of the Holy Spirit. If it means something else, that's not clear to me. That's just my best understanding. And from Jesus Christ, who is the faithful witness, the firstborn from the dead, the ruler of the kings of the earth. Now, if you are about to be persecuted, as these Christians were, or you were in the middle of persecution, as some were, or you have experienced 
persecution as some had, to be reminded that Jesus is the ruler over the kings of the earth is a great encouragement. To him who loves us and who has freed us from our sin by his blood and has made us to be a kingdom and priests to serve God and to serve his God and Father, to him be glory and power forever and ever. Amen. Look, he is coming with the clouds and every eye will see him, even those who pierced him and all peoples will mourn because of him. So shall it be. Amen. So here John quotes two prophecies, one from Daniel chapter 7 and the other from Zechariah chapter 12. I am the Alpha and Omega, says the Lord God, who is and who was and who is to come, the Almighty. So what John is saying is, hey, the stuff that we're going to talk about is the stuff that the prophets of old talked about. And then he quotes God directly, and this is God saying, I am the first and the last. I have been I am, I will be, I am eternal, and I am speaking to you and me, the church. Verse 9, I, John, your brother and companion in suffering, and the kingdom, the patient endurance that is ours in Jesus. I was on the island of Patmos, and Patmos is an island in the eastern Mediterranean. Again, tradition says that John was exiled there because of his faith. Because of the word of God and the testimony of Jesus, on the Lord's day, I was in the Spirit. What does that mean? Well, the Lord's day could mean two things, and there is disagreement about it, and I don't think it's worth arguing over, but I'll give you both points of view. The Lord's day could mean Sunday morning. The Lord's day could also be translated, I was in the Spirit unto the day of the Lord, meaning that the Holy Spirit came upon him, and he saw the day of the Lord, the the final judgment of all things. He saw the end of time, whatever, however you want to describe it. Personally, I believe that he was just praying on Sunday morning, and that is when he received this vision. There's something interesting about that, that John was just doing the basic, everyday, weekly rhythms of his faith. His spiritual rhythms, he got up and he prayed. Even though he was exiled and he couldn't be with the church, on Sunday morning he made time to devote himself to God. You might say, well, Sundays aren't any different than any other day. Why does the church meet on Sundays? Well, we meet on Sundays because that's the day we've always met. We meet on Sundays because that's the day that most people can show up. If I found out that most people could meet uh, on Tuesdays at 2.40 in the afternoon, then that's when church would be. But it's not. The church has met on Sunday mornings not because it is Christian Sabbath, not because it is a day uh, that Christians must observe some kind of like modern version of the Sabbath, although I believe in Christians resting and and observing Sabbath in their lives in some way. They met on Sunday morning because that's the morning that Jesus rose from the dead. And And it became more and more their day of marking as the church became its own thing separated from Judaism. He said, I was in the Spirit. Now, either the Spirit of God came upon him, or he was just sitting, praying, maybe something he had done every week for the last 40 years. Nothing like this had ever happened before. There is something about just observing the spiritual disciplines, praying, reading our Bibles, worshiping in song, gathering together, all of the basic disciplines of our faith. And maybe nothing happens for six months or six years. And then one day, something different occurs. And it occurs as we are doing the ordinary, the average, the unimportant. And yet we find out that it's been so important all along. 
And I heard behind me a loud voice like a trumpet which said, Write on a scroll what you see and send it to the seven churches, to Ephesus, to Smyrna, Pergamum, Thyatira, Sardis, Philadelphia, and Laodicea. So these are the seven churches that are going to get a copy of this letter. I turned around to see the voice that was speaking to me. And when I turned, I saw seven golden lampstands. So these are oil lamps. Uh, they, they feed in, oil feeds into where the flame comes up, keeps you lit. Uh, seven of them among the lampstands was somebody like a son of man, dressed in a robe, reaching down to his feet with a golden sash around his chest. His hair was like white wool, white as snow. His eyes were like blazing fire. His feet were like bronze glowing in a furnace. His voice was like the sound of rushing waters. And in his right hand, he held seven stars. And coming out of his mouth was a sharp, double-edged sword. His face was like the face of the shining sun in its brilliance. So he turns around and he sees these seven golden lampstands and then he sees somebody who looks like a human, but he is not. There is something different about him. Power is radiating from him. And he's holding seven stars in his hands. What is that all about? You know, my kids have a thing. We'll be watching a movie and then like somebody who we haven't seen in the movie before will appear and say something or do something and they'll go, who's that? What's going on? Well, you have to watch and see. The movie has just created a mystery for us to unravel. The movie has just interjected something new that we have to figure out. In the same way, I find that Christians and non-Christians alike will read the Bible, especially the book of the Revelation, and they'll see something that we do not understand. Do we know what is going on with this being who's holding stars in his hands? We do not yet. But we have to keep reading because at the end of this chapter, the answers will come. Sometimes it's not the end of the chapter. Sometimes it's the next chapter, the chapter after. Sometimes it's just, just keep reading and you will find the answers. Verse 17, when I saw him, I fell, to my, I fell at his feet as though I were dead. Then he placed his right hand on me and said, do not be afraid. I am the first and the last. I am the living one. I was dead. But now look, I am alive forever and ever, and I hold the keys of death and Hades. Write, therefore, what you have seen, what is now, and what will take place later. The mystery of the seven stars that you saw in my right hand and the seven golden lampstands is this. The seven stars are the angels of the seven churches, and the seven lampstands are the seven churches. So what does that mean? It means that those seven churches that are getting this letter are represented by these lampstands. And who is walking among them in their midst? Who is there with them? Jesus. And what is he holding in his hand? There is great debate about this. The word messengers, that, or the word that's translated angels, is the word angelos, and it can mean messenger, an angel, a messenger, or it can mean what we would think of as angels, supernatural beings like Gabriel, like uh, uh, Michael the archangel, the, these, these beings who appear, the angels who appeared to the shepherds the night Jesus was born, uh, you know, the angel Gabriel who appeared to Mary to tell her that Jesus was, was going to be born even though she was still a virgin. They bring the messages of God to people. 
So there is a debate. Is this talking about angels, like churches have guardian angels? Or is this speaking of the messengers of the churches, the, the pastors, the leaders? Maybe both, I don't know. That's one of those things that I don't know the answer to, and I don't feel like there's a reason to argue. What I do know for certain is that the lampstands represent the churches, and that Jesus is walking among them, and he is holding in his hands those who would bring the word of God to the people. And if, if that's speaking of me, a pastor, a messenger to the church, speaking of the other pastors in our area that we know of, and that Jesus is holding us in, the, in his hands, oh, that's so encouraging. If that's speaking that our church has an angel assigned to us, that's also very interesting and cool. Our church has a guardian angel. Awesome. The main thing is not about the angels or the lampstands or the stars. The main thing is that Jesus is there holding us, walking with us, among us. The big idea for this morning is Jesus now. We've gone over basic information about the book, a basic overview, but here's the thing. Jesus is the opposite of basic. There's been all kinds of conversation about why is it that you know, men seem to be unengaged in church life. And this conversation's been going on for decades now. I don't think this is the only answer, but I think part of the answer is that we don't talk about who Jesus is now. Why is it that people come to church for a season and then leave? It's because we don't focus on who Jesus is now. He is not the Jesus who is suffering on the cross. He is not the Jesus who was, uh, you know, beaten, although all of that is true. He is not the Jesus who walked around on the earth. He is the Jesus glorified and living and radiating his power. He's not the Jesus who limited himself. The book of Philippians talks about how Jesus lowered himself even lower than the angels to come and rescue us. But now he sits in glory and victory and power. When you get to the end of the book of the Revelation, Jesus comes to make war against the devil and his forces. Jesus is not weak. Jesus is not impotent. Jesus is not inactive. He is actively moving among his church and he is doing so in his power. He's the opposite of basic. But I think we give people this weak sort of Jesus. I'm not saying you or us, but in general. That's often been the case. Jesus is powerful, and he is strong, and he is active. Now, what's he doing walking among the churches, and, and, and he's got this message for them? We'll get into that next week. But as we start the book of the Revelation, the thing to focus on is this. It's not about the mystery of the stars and whether it's talking about angels or pastors. It's not about uh, who the Antichrist is or what the mark of the beast means. It's about Jesus and Jesus and his work and what he is doing and what he is about and what he has to say to us. Let me say this. I have known people who have told me I tried Christianity. I tried to keep all the rules and it didn't work for me. Then you didn't try Christianity. You just tried religion. Jesus is the one who does the work. Me keeping rules, that's just me trying to be religious. Did you experience the power of God? 
This frustrates people because it's easier to just be academic about our faith. It's easier to just know all of the right answers, but to have to actively engage, as we talked about recently with the presence of God, that, that's, that's frightening because this Jesus terrified John. John fell down like he was dead. And Jesus had to come and say, don't be afraid, it's okay. We don't need to be afraid of the book of the Revelation. We don't need to be afraid of the prophecies that come from God. We don't need to be afraid of the power of the Holy Spirit working in us and in the church. Because we know that Jesus is good. And that's the journey we are about to go on. What is it that Jesus wants us to know? What is it that Jesus has to say to us? What is it that Jesus wants us to learn about himself? And that's the goal as we study the book of the Revelation. Because Jesus is walking in victory over sin and death. Jesus is walking in power and he is spreading that power and his message to his church so that we may bring it to the world that is dying in sin. But we know the cure. Jesus who was and who is and who is to come. Jesus who walks among his church. Jesus who holds his messengers in his hands. That's the Jesus now that we serve. That's the Jesus now who sends us on his mission. And we walk under his power, under his name, under his banner. Go, therefore, into all the earth. Make disciples of all people baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to obey all that Jesus has commanded. God bless you. We'll see you this week in the small groups and next week as we continue our study in the book of the Revelation.